Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for making your way out on a cold uh, winter's night. I think we're going to get started here. So if you want to grab your last bag of popcorn or your last uh, beverage, uh, we're going to start our discussion. So uh, I'd just like to welcome you on behalf of Wycliffe College and the Meeting House to our monthly theology pub night. And I'm very pleased to have a wonderful guest, Dr. Dennis Lamroux, here this evening. Uh, a little bit before we start, uh, if you notice, we just have a new art installation. And uh, the artist is here tonight, Brian Johnstone. So if you want to uh, discuss with him uh, some of his provocative art, uh, feel free to chat with him afterwards. Um, but uh, uh, really pleased to have Dennis here. So. Uh, Dennis and I go way back, um, so I think we've known each other for 23 years uh, when I was an undergraduate student in biochemistry at the University of Alberta. Uh, Dennis was uh, one of my professors, and uh, as I was navigating uh, science and religion and how, uh, just how to navigate that tension, uh, the course was a really important part of my own uh, journey. So. Uh, a little bit about Dennis, I'll, uh, by way of introduction. Uh, Dennis holds uh, six academic degrees. Uh, he has a Bachelor of Science, a Doctor of Dental Surgery, uh, Masters of Christian Studies from Regent, where he specialized uh, in the first chapters of Genesis. He also has a Master of Divinity from Regent College. He has a PhD in Theology from uh, Toronto School of Theology here and he also has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Alberta. And so, what did you say, there was 19 years of post-secondary education? Yeah, that's so. about right. <laughs> My father told me to get an education, he just didn't tell me when to stop. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, tonight we're just gonna have a broad-ranging discussion on faith and science. Uh, some of you were able to catch the movie beforehand, and we're going to uh, discuss some of the uh, themes that, are, that come out in Planet of the Apes. Um, but uh, Dennis, why don't you uh, share, uh, just before we really dive into this whole discussion, how you got into this question of science and faith, and you can give us the PG-13 version <laughs> of uh, that story. Well, it's, it's sort of been... Um, best part of my adult life. I mean, I started university in 1972. I went to a good Catholic boys' school. My very first biology course was in evolutionary biology. It makes perfect sense. It's a unifying theory of all biology. And by Christmas time, um, religion and my faith were completely gone because like many, and they continue to be today, we're trapped in a dichotomy in the sense you're either on the religion side or you're on the science side. You can't be both. And, um, you know, Christian parents are concerned about public universities in the sense of the secularization going on. And so by, the, by Christmas time of that first year of university, I'm done with church. And by the time I'm in between my third and fourth years of dental school, I'm, I'm completely the secularization process is complete. I'm an atheist. Um, the military paid my way through dental school. I did some serving as a dentist. I went to Nicosia, Cyprus, United uh, nation's peacekeeping, and it was there my faith was rekindled, and for those who are familiar with the scripture, Gospel of John, how many adult conversions do we have the Gospel of John? 
Now, the thing to note about this, so there's a, there's a conversion going on, but I'm still trapped in the dichotomy. I come home to Canada, and I end up in an evangelical uh, church in 1980. And, of course, within evangelicalism, there's a great tension when it comes to biological evolution. And being in a large church, there were a lot of young earth creationists, and because evolution destroyed my faith, I was absolutely delighted to find out there's a way to attack evolution and had these arguments. Uh, finished my military commitment and just had a sense of, I would like to do this. And uh, so started off Regent College, specializing in Genesis 1 to 11. And that was really the first start of the, the, the shaking of my, my worldview as a young earth creationist and realizing you can't read those opening chapters in a strict, literal way. Um, so by the time I was done three years, and the other thing I'm, I've got to add is, you know, within the sciences, there's this smug attitude that science guys are so smart, and you guys in the arts, you know, you, you're the knuckleheads, you're not that bright at all. Well, three years in theology did I get an attitude adjustment in terms of these humanities people are absolutely brilliant. I have to change my views on that. So after that, I came here to Toronto School of Theology, um, did a, a piece on science and religion, and my thesis was on uh, looking at the first generation of evangelicals after Charles Darwin, in particular the Princetonians. And big reveal was these guys had no trouble with evolution so long as they saw it as God's ordained and sustained natural process. So at this point, I finish, uh, what, I was here at Wycliffe, I lived in, it's just the most wonderful community, so every time I come back, I'm so grateful for Wycliffe College, and so I ended that program. At this point, I'm going to encourage all the university students here. I have one, two, three, four, five university degrees, and I still don't have a job. Are you encouraged? <laughs> <laughs> but more seriously, and it's, it's a function of my faith and getting on my knees, and the Lord basically saying, okay, you want to get into this origins debate stuff, you know, how much science do you really know, Dennis? And I say, well, look, Lord, I can fix people's teeth. I'm not a basic scientist. But because I have a tooth background, I could get into a PhD in the evolution of teeth and jaws, some of the very best evolutionary evidence. I'm still an anti-evolutionist at this point. So I'm going back. I am building up this large argument to attack evolutionary biology. I mean, I would find a project with my supervisor, you know, we both could have, you know, that we could agree on. And it's the same sort of experience that when I first went to Regent College and after three years realized you can't read the scriptures, literally, after three and a half years of seeing the data day in and day out, and of course I'd see little bits of evolutionary evidence and I'd, I'd, call, I'd have a counter-argument for this, but then after three and a half years, I'm like the little boy at the dike and all the leaks are sort of going through the, through the dike, I just put my hands up in the air and basically uh, verbalize what just about every biologist says about evolution if they're studying the right biology working the evidence for evolution is simply overwhelming now with regard to my personal faith i often say the jesus i loved and served as a young earth creationist is the very same jesus i love and serve as an evolutionary creationist which is the term we're now using instead of theistic evolution so my faith my faith is quite static my love for the word of god is static and I now have a job uh, teaching this, and, and, and what's really funny is, though I started at university in 72, and you think maybe this is a problem for my generation, what I see with my undergraduates, uh, it's the very same issue. They 
come from good religious homes, they go to good churches, they come to the university, and in particular, you know, they're going to biology, and many of them want to go to med school or dental school, and so they're seeing all this biological evidence for evolution. And of course, the teeth and the bones are all very cool, but if you want to know where the best evidence for evolution, it's the genes. And because medicine's heading in a direction of genes, the undergrads have to get really equipped on this genetic stuff, and particularly the evolutionary genetics. So the average student that comes into my class is compartmentalized. They see biology five days a week in the university. Then on Sundays, they're hearing other things about how do you deal with origins. And they're just aching. They're yearning for someone to sort of say, there's a way of doing this. And in the last 25 years, there's been an explosion of these new positions in science and religion. And I have the privilege of having the first one in Canada. And it's high, happening at the highest places, Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, Harvard. Um, these places uh, are realizing that this is a credible academic discipline. And um, you might find it interesting that 40% of my students are not religious students. They're just searching and there's just sort of, and this is, we've been doing science and religion all through history. It's just that we've used the term in the last 25 years. But this is your reason and faith sort of dialogue. And how do you put the two pieces together? And that's what I do for a living and it's an unbelievable privilege to, to do it. Well, thanks, Dennis. How's that for a summary? <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's go back to some of your work in your first PhD um, around Charles Darwin uh, and the people that followed him. Um, one of the popular assumptions is that Charles Darwin himself was an atheist and that he was trying to <laughs> promote uh, a worldview that did not need God. Um, in your research uh, of Charles Darwin, uh, what did you find? Well, let me tell you what's so amazing about the Toronto School of Theology. Um, you can go outside your college. And there's a professor across the street at Trinity named Don Weeb, who I absolutely love this man. Um, I walked into his office one day, and he was doing science and religions. He was on my, on my committee. And I made the comment, he said, yeah, Darwin's an atheist. And, well, Weeb just snapped. <laughs> he says, grab, he grabbed this book and says, you need to read this book. It was uh, Charles Gillespie's book on, on Darwin's religious beliefs. And then he says, I want to see you in two months. You're writing your first chapter on your PhD on what Darwin actually believed. And, oh, believe you me, that just opened my eyes completely because in many times we're being motivated by ideas within the culture when we should be asking the question, let's read not the secondary literature, but what did Darwin actually say? And the, uh, the amazing story of the Darwin story is Charles Darwin never, ever was an atheist through his career. In fact, he dies in 82, 1882, and in May 7th of uh, 1879, he says it point blankly, I have never been an atheist, and even qualifies this, in the sense of denying the existence of God. So this is 79. Remember, he writes The Origin of Species in 59, 1859. And in 76, uh, when he writes his autobiography, he looks back at the time of when he was writing The Origin of Species, and he says, you know, at the time I was writing The Origin of Species, I was a theist. Now, not a Christian theist, but he believed in a general personal God. And the other thing that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge, and Darwin point blankly said it, he believed in intelligent design when he wrote The Origin of Species. So for him, 
evolution was not, and I'm going to use the technical term, a dysteleological uh, process in that it has no plan or purpose. You know, it, in contradiction to what Richard Dawkins is suggesting evolution is doing, what Darwin's basically saying is there's a God behind it. In fact, in The Origin of Species, he refers to the Creator with a capital C seven times and always in a positive context. So, um, part of my voyage, and I mean, th this was sort of a, a shocking moment, you know, I believe like all evangelicals in evangelical churches that Darwin was an atheist, and he wasn't. So pretty encouraging. Well, one of the other surprising things is not only was Darwin not an atheist himself, but some of his early um, proponents and defenders were evangelical Christians. Now, there's a famous book called Darwin's Forgotten Defenders. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of those people and how they navigated this early, um, early encounter with the origin of species and evolutionary theory? Yeah, this is a book by David N. Livingston, and it's simply entitled Darwin's Forgotten Defenders. I can't remember the subtitle. Some sort of interaction with evangelicalism. And in many ways, my PhD went over some of the people uh, David was studying. And the, the bottom line on it is these are terrific scholars in some of the best universities in the world, and they had no trouble with evolution, but here's the move that needs to be made, and it's what needs to be said in the culture here today. Evolution is a scientific theory. There is no debate. The evidence is overwhelming. 98% of scientists embrace it. So as a physical theory, it's a terrific theory. And we talk about it being a unifying theory. Biology makes perfect sense in the light of evolution. The moment you grab evolutionary theory and put that as your set of glasses, then you go out in nature and see biology, it all makes sense. Now here's the question. Is evolution purposeless, running by irrational necessity and blind chance, or is there someone who started the process? So coming back to your question, Steve, all these first generation of scholars, and it's not to say there weren't some pushing against that. For example, Charles Hodge at, at Princeton uh, did not go all the way, but people like McCosh, people like B.B. Warfield, um, they looked at evolution and they used an analogy. And in fact, this analogy is found in The Origin of Species. That's where I first read it. And so here I am as an anti-evolutionist starting to read this and seeing some of the arguments of how I, as a religious person, should I ever accept evolution, embrace it. And, and Darwin was very sensitive to, to religious people. And, he, and in The Origin of Species, towards the end, he says, look it, there's an analogy between you being created in your mother's womb through natural processes, so too in evolution. You'll not find a religious person saying, God comes out of heaven to attach an arm or attach a leg. Rather, we get created in the, our mother's womb through natural processes, through developmental processes, embryological processes. And so Darwin says, if this is the case in the womb and God's creating you in that fashion, then why can't there be another set of natural processes that scientists call evolutionary processes and that it's through these evolutionary processes all of life is created and that God is behind the process in the same way God is behind the process of creating you in the womb. So if I can take this a little further, Psalm 139 is a famous psalm whereby it says, God knit us fearfully and wonderfully made in our, in our mother's womb. I would say God created the world and knit all living organisms fearly, fear, fearfully and wonderfully made. 
through an evolutionary process. So that was a, one of the basic arguments. Many of these, uh, this first generation of uh, Christians that, of course, we've forgotten that story, and that's thanks to David Livingston. And I would suggest, boy, if you want a really good read, it's not very long. It's only 186 pages. Um, read it before anything I've written. That's how much I think of David Livingston. He's great. Um, and you're going you're gonna to see a great story. And, and again, it's something we've forgotten, especially, say, in North American culture. For, for many evangelical churches in particular, wrestling with the evolution issue. That reminds me, we're going to give away a couple of your books, but I left them on my desk. So okay. hopefully they appear <laughs> All right. at some point. But read Livingston <laughs> before my stuff. Um, so I'm going to just uh, bring one of the clips that I've prepared tonight uh, from our movie, um, and then we're going to talk a little bit. Oh, let's see. I think Terry. Oh, there we go. Okay, let's see. Has it, uh, if you haven't seen Planet of the Apes, uh, the 1968 version um, with Charlton Heston, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. It's yep. one of my favorites. Um, it has some classic Heston overacting, but it also has some deep philosophical themes going uh, throughout it. And uh, there's a couple of scenes in the movie that really capture the tension in our culture between uh, religious belief and scientific theories. And uh, I've got a couple of them prepared tonight, but uh, here's the first one. So in the story, uh, if you haven't seen it before, um, there's an ape civilization, and they have a sacred tradition um, and this one scientist, this archaeologist, has found evidence of a civilization that lived before this ancient history was written. And I think uh, in, um, in, Christian, in the West, in Christianity, a, same, a similar dynamic, you know, has been uh, happening, um, especially with, you know, the, the dating of Genesis and the genealogies. Uh, there was a pressure to view the world as, you know, 6,000 years old, um, but yet there was this evidence emerging, you know, through uh, geology and through cosmology that the earth is actually older. And this, this, there was this dynamic pressure um, between the two. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the rise of this uh, tension uh, into the fir first part of the 20th century? Well, look, at this, is, this tension's been going on for the longest time. You know, not called science and religion in the early church. It's more reason and faith. Um, your first episode, I don't think most people are aware of it, is the Galileo affair. I mean, most people prior to Galileo, it was a geocentric world, no. The Galileo affair is, has nothing to do with flat earth at that point. Everyone believed the earth was a sphere. But all of a sudden, when Copernicus came along and put us, instead of being in the center, on the third rock from the sun, I mean, they had that same sort of dynamic because statements where it says the earth does not move, the sun moves across the sky, and so how do they relate with that? Um, the next move, have I lost that? Just keep going. Okay. Um, start over. Start over? Well, th th this, <laughs> th this whole thing about but sort do of thinking. do it better this time. Yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> you see, he used to be my student, and I knew this was going to be payback time tonight. Oh, well, it's coming. It's, oh, it's coming. There's more coming. <laughs> And it's easing you into the false sense of security. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we've been, there's, there's been a, a long history of, of wrestling with, uh, if you wish, uh, understanding of nature and, and, and sacred texts and theology. And one of our 
the first episodes, it's not one of the first episodes, but one that most people are aware of is the, the issue of Galileo and Copernicus. Um, everyone at that time, and of course you often hear statements that the Galileo affair is about a flat earth. No, it had nothing to do with a flat earth. Um, everyone believed the earth was a sphere. And what Copernicus did and what Galileo followed up is instead of putting the earth in the center of the universe called geocentricity, Copernicus put the sun in the center of the universe and put the earth the third rock from the sun. And of course, this created some tension with regards to what do you do with the scriptures because there are places in the scriptures that say very clear the sun does not, or the sun moves and the earth does not move. And if you want to see a really great document from Galileo himself called the letter to the Grand Duchess Christina, uh, 1615. It's his hermeneutical treatise that starts the process. Our next challenge then became geology. Now this might sound unusual and shocking, but at the beginning of the 17th century, if you were a geologist, you were a flood geologist. And uh, Davis Young has written a brilliant book on this. I mean, they're seeing all these layers in the Earth's crust, they know that all these straight lines are being laid down in water, so to think there was a global flood makes sense. But as geology and they start discovering the different layers can't be laid down just in one flood, uh, it starts moving in a direction. And so finally we have the evolution question uh, coming on, and we've been wrestling with this for quite a while. Um, one of the challenges uh, is where's the evidence? Well, the evidence is mounting, and as I was saying earlier, your best evidence right now is your genetic evidence. It's as if in each and every one of your cells, you've got, and I'm speaking metaphorically now, a little stamp saying created through an evolutionary process. But of course, that creates quite a tension with, and I always carry with it, uh, the Word of God. What do you do with creation in six days in Genesis 1? What do you do with creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2? And people who love the scriptures are really wrestling and continue to wrestle with that. But you do have a, a, a variety. I mean, within a place like Wycliffe, a wonderful evangelical school with wonderful academics, this is just not an issue. It's more out in the churches uh, of my tradition, evangelical tradition, that they're wrestling with this. And there's a deeply embedded assumption, and I'm going to use the technical term because I hope you will remember it and think about it, it's the term concordism. Now think of the word to accord. Concordism is the idea that statements about nature in the scripture will align what we describe and find in nature through science. Now, concordism is pretty darn reasonable. For example, God created the world. I believe that. God inspired the Bible. I believe that. So to see that there's some sort of alignment between the two is perfectly reasonable. And through most of church history and up until today, many people, a majority of people have been concordists. But here's the question. Did God inspire and put in scientific facts in the Bible ahead of their time? Now here was my move as a young earth creationist away from concordism is by dealing with the text directly and recognizing that what you find in the text is an ancient understanding of nature. So when I look at the scripture, I see the Holy Spirit coming down to the level of these ancient Hebrews, allowing them to use their cosmology in order to use it as a vessel to deliver large spiritual truths, like God is the creator. We've been created in the image of God. The creation is very good. And so I would say this is sort of where we're wrestling 
with, especially in a lot of uh, churches, is the issue of concordism. And do I get a lot of pushback? You better believe it, I got a lot of pushback. Because that deeply embedded notion of concordism is there. And again, it's perfectly reasonable. But the stepping away from it is actually seeing what the text has to say. And I'll add one more story. I mean, one of the great things about academic life is you get to travel around and meet some of the most amazing people. And this afternoon, I was with one of the Old Testament scholars here at the college, uh, uh, Dr. Glenn, Glenn Taylor, who's just, uh, just a, it's a wonderful friend and wonderful colleague. And we were commiserating that when it comes to this science-religion dialogue, it's not often you have Old Testament scholars as part of that discussion because they provide such a wonderful insight to sort of say, look at, yes, it's the Word of God, but when the Holy Spirit inspired these individuals, he allowed them to use their cosmology, or if you wish, their science, their ancient science. In other words, God accommodated down to their level. And the only way you get to see that, and the only way I got to see that, was by studying Genesis 1 to 11. And this is the importance of why we have to have biblical scholars part of this discussion, and not just scientists. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's wonderful. And also, if you're from a differing perspective, we're going to have a Q&A afterwards, so you'll have a chance to take Dennis down. And, uh, <laughs> it's uh, common, isn't it? Maybe. <laughs> um, so, Dennis, um, in your experience as a teacher, um, you have students come from differing perspectives. You'll have students, like you said, come from a young earth perspective, come to your class. You have atheistic students come uh, to your class. What are some of your experiences of how, uh, what hap what's happening with those students as they're wrestling with these issues? I think of a, a study that came out a few years ago called Hemorrhaging Faith, and they said oh. one of the main reasons uh, young people are leaving the church is because of science. Um, is that something that you see um, actively as a teacher of undergraduates at the University of Alberta? Well, um, great question. Let me describe the average religious student who comes into my class. They're compartmentalized. Sunday's over here. University of Alberta, science and biology is over there. The amazing thing about these young people is they know intuitively that there has to be some sort of middle ground. So the privilege I have with these, these young people, and though my course is called Science and Religion, it has a high emphasis on how do you interpret those opening chapters of scripture. And as I bring them through the process, they start seeing there's not just one way of relating science and religion. I show them a variety of models from different scholars. Um, slowly they start, I mean, they, 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 they're absolutely delighted by the end of the course in that they can embrace science fully, um, including evolutionary biology and also their faith. And one of the great things about teaching, um, and for those who are professors will tell you this, and including high school teachers and all teachers, uh, your students teach you just about as much as you teach them. And I'll share one story of uh, one that just sort of really got my heart. It was a young woman after about the first three weeks of the course. And the way I set up the course is I basically outlined the whole course in the first three weeks, and then I recycled the ideas all the way through. And a young woman came up to me after class, and she was quite flush. Her face was red, and her eyes were glassy. And I'm going, uh-oh, what's this? She says, you have no idea what this course is doing to me. And I'm going, oh. And she says... I no longer feel guilty 
going to biology class. You understand what's being said here? Here's a young woman being told in her church that yes, you've got to go through the biology department, learn the theory of evolution, but don't believe it. Learn it so you can put it on the exam and pass, but don't believe it. Now, can you imagine a more dysfunctional education than that? And then this young woman said to me, you have no idea how excited it is, it is for me to go to biology class and learn about evolution because it just blows my mind on how neat it is. I mean, as an instructor, what more can I ask for? So um, my, my way of teaching, and I'm influenced, uh, my college, St. Joseph's College, is right next door to the Faculty of Education. I love the Ed guys. They're always coaching me. Um, and one of the things that they've coached me on, I've been doing this for quite a while, is what is known as constructivist pedagogy, whereby the student constructs their own reality. And at the beginning of the class, I say to them, despite the fact that this is a Christian college, you have 110% intellectual freedom. And historically, I've given as many A-pluses to atheists, to Sikhs, to Muslims, to Christians, to Protestants, you name it. For those who are professors, you know one thing about an A-plus student. An A-plus kid is a kid who's really smarter than you are, and I have no trouble admitting that. And so using the constructivist pedagogy, just saying, all right, I'm going to spread all the different views across the table for you. Uh, 40%, though this is a, you know, technically a, a, a theology course, 40% of my material is non-religious material. You know, lots of Richard Dawkins, a lot of deists, and give them some general questions and say, all right, answer that. And the other thing I do, I give the final exam questions at the beginning of the term, and as they work through the course and through the class discussions, they put those things together. So um, I am... I'm in awe of these young people because after 13 weeks, and I don't mind saying this, they have a better grasp of science and religion than I had as I walked out of university. And one thing about them, just give them some clean categories. Um, they will build this, they'll construct their own reality and do quite well. And when it comes to the religious students, the Christians in particular, um, I tell them what my views are, but they're never on exams, and when they have their class discussion, and I have a class discussion on one of the final exam questions every week, um, and I survey them to find out what their views are, and then I show them my views, it's, it's haunting that the views I hold are exactly the same views they hold. They figure it out on their own. So Dennis, you've alluded to different categories. Uh, why not, for the audience, kind of walk us through you know, the five perspectives of, you know, reconciling science and religion uh, together because, you know, in this movie, especially, it seems like it's trying to project some kind of dichotomy uh, between uh, faith and science, that, there are mu that they are mutually exclu exclusive, and if science is true, then you must uh, reject the sacred tradi tradition. Um, what are some of the different categories that uh, are helpful you're, in thinking? You're, you're spot on, and, and, and you use this term dichotomy. And what I love about this movie is it's really my story in terms of you've got one of two positions. You're either on the religious side or you're on the science side. And in my course, that's the very first paradigm in the course, saying this is what we're going to challenge all the way through. And you might find this interesting. So I've been teaching for 23 years. I will run into students in all sorts of different places, and they'll come up to me. 
and they always say this from the get-go. They said, if there's one thing I learned about this course, and it's unbelievable, how the culture is entrenched in a dichotomy. You've got to be one or the other, and there's not many people in the middle in terms of saying they're Christians and also scientists, or in particular in my case. I'm an evangelical born-again Christian and also an evolutionary biologist, still doing a little bit of evolution on the side. So what I do, and if you're interested, I, every, every, every guy's got a shtick lecture, and last night I, I, I gave it here, and it's simply entitled, Beyond the, and I put quotation marks on evolution, Beyond the Evolution Versus, and quotation marks, Creation Debate. In other words, I'm being a little bit sarcastic to say, we have to get beyond this either-or approach. And out there in the culture, and I hate to say it, the churches are doing this, the media is doing this, they're continually ingraining this dichotomy. And the notion is that if you're going to be an evolutionist, you have to be, and here's your first category, a dysteleological evolutionist. And what I mean by dysteleology, teleology, telos in Greek means plan and purpose, so a dysteleological evolutionary process is one without any plan and purpose, or in other words, an atheistic interpretation of evolution. And of course, that's seen as, notice my quotation marks, the evolutionary position. Over there on the other extreme, often seen as the creationist position, is young earth creation. Now these are wonderful Christians. I mean, I used to be a young earth creationist. They love the scriptures, and they're reading the scriptures very, very literally. And if you add up all the genealogies, that's what you get indeed, 6,000 years. So between these, two extreme, sorry, between these two extreme positions, there are positions in between. Over on the religion side, there is progressive creation, also known as the day-age theory. Uh, you might know the name Hugh Ross. He's a graduate of this university, PhD in astronomy. And what Hugh Ross and his group will point out is the earth is very old. So they've done a wonderful contribution to the church, helping young earth creationists to realize the earth is old. However, still trouble with the evolution issue. So Hugh and his, uh, his colleagues will say that God creates progressively. In other words, God comes out of heaven, X number of years, creates a species, then goes back into heaven and creates progressively. In other words, there's no continuity between the two. So that's your third position, then jump over to the more secular side, deistic evolution, deism is a philosophical position, a belief in God, but this is an impersonal God. This is a God who winds the clock of the universe and lets it run on its own. Then right in the center of it, you probably are familiar with the term theistic evolution, in other words, a God creating through an evolutionary process, but in the last 15 to 20 years, there's a new term that's emerging to hold this position, and in particular, these are Christians that are distinctly conservative and also evangelical, and the term is evolutionary creation. Now, of course, this is gonna be like a conundrum in the minds of a lot of people, because most people think evolution has to be atheistic, and a lot of people think that creation has to be creation in six days. The term evolutionary creation, we talk about grammar, we talk about the substantive, in other words, the most important term. The most important term in the term, the category evolutionary creation, is creation. These are people who believe in a creator, but they happen to believe that this creator creates through an evolutionary process. Again, back to that easy understanding of the womb. 
We're all created in our mother's womb through natural processes. Evolutionary creationists will say God used the evolutionary process. So in other words, evolution is planned. Evolution has been, number one, ordained. God ordered it right from the Big Bang. And if you think about this, think of the foresight that if all you do is one massive explosion, and out of that massive explosion, it's all set up like a set of loaded dice for us to show up 14 billion years down the road in order that we can love one another horizontally and love God vertically. The foresight to do that is unbelievable. So an evolutionary creationist would say God has one major creative event, that is the Big Bang, and the whole system has been loaded for us to appear. In other words, we're inevitable. And as we go through that evolutionary process, there comes a time where humans start to bear the image of God, humans start becoming morally culpable, and humans start to sin. So our cardinal notions that humans are created in the image of God, that we're sinners, can all be absorbed within a, uh, a, that evolutionary creationist model. Well, that kind of segues to the other clip that I had, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, some more of the tension. So this is a trial that they're having for these two scientists and Charlton Heston, um, and they're about to um, rule on whether uh, what they're bringing forth is valid. And so it seems, though, Dennis, that um, your view flies in the face of what is self-evident in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, You're right. Yeah. How, how do you reconcile that? And it took you, you know, 19 years of post-secondary education you know, to come to this conclusion, um, it seems, you know, hard to believe that God would make something so complicated that uh, it'd be hard for us to arrive at the, the true answer of how we came to be. Um, how, do you, how do you kind of deal with that tension? How do you, you know, pastorally, you know, talk to people that don't have that opportunity to have that much um, training and does that kind of fly in the face of the plain, simple message um, that Christianity is supposed to bring out uh, through the scriptures? Oh, wow. Those are, you've asked a lot of really great questions. Let's talk about the pastoral component. Yes, I come under this rubric of being an academic, but if you want to know what motivates me more than anything else, it's the pastoral aspect of this discussion. And you might be interested, I go to a very large Pentecostal church being uh, just becoming a senior citizen this past May, I go to the early service with all the old guys. And in this church, the people I worship with on Sunday morning, I guarantee you've probably got 95% of them are young earth creationists. In fact, we hold the largest young earth creationist conference in our church every year. And when I came to this church, um, it, you often wonder, it was the very first time I went there, I wanted to listen to the senior pastor. He was uh, magnificent, and he actually came from behind. And he says, who are you? And usually I say, I'm Dennis, but I said, I'm Dennis Lamaru, and he hopped back. So he knew exactly who I was. And I says, I think we need to have a conversation. So I went and visited him, and I said to him, you know, I'm planning on coming to your church. I will never become a member to protect you and the board so you have no authority over me. And it's not that I have trouble having authority over me. I just don't want to have a heresy trial 
And of course, you have some sort of heresy trial that's going to end up on the front page of the Edmonton Journal, and it's going to make the church look stupid again, right? And so I said to him, Sunday morning for me is to sing some praise and worship music. And by the way, I can't sing, so if you're ever in church, don't stand beside me because you're going to hear a really lousy voice. But I, I love singing praise and worship music and I uh, love listening to a good uh, sermon. And I, I told the pastor, I said, you know, if someone identifies who I am in the church and tries to take a run at me, I'll turn around and run out to my car and leave. And if he wants to say they kicked Lamru's butt, that doesn't bother me in the least. So the issue, the pastoral implications of this are very, very important. And you might be interested that the church prior to that tried to have a, you know, one of these heresy trials. They were concerned about something I've written, my book, Evolutionary Creation, back in 08. And the pastor phoned me up a Saturday and I said, um, he says, you know, many people are concerned in the church about what you've written. And I said, well, do you know what my status is in your church? And he didn't. I mean, I'm supporting it financially, assumes I'm a member. I said, I've never taken membership out. And the reason is for this very moment. So we don't have to have some sort of disciplinary hearing or whatever you want to call it, heresy trial, because I'm at the, that's the, that was the largest university church in the city. You know this was going to leak out. It would be on the front page of the Edmonton Journal, University of Alberta professor, Galileo repeated debate. We don't need to do that for the church. So the issue of, of the pastoral aspect is so important to me in that... Um, I'm here to build people up, and there's sometimes the stuff I have to say does not need to be told to certain individuals. So for those wonderful grand old saints I go to church with, um, they're going to go to the grave as young earth creationists, and I'm not going to take that away from them. But here's the but. It's that younger generation. It's those undergraduates that are wrestling with this. And so I will go in some churches, and it's all planned ahead, and make sure the senior pastor knows what's going on, but it will be we call college and careers. In other words, young adults, uh, university students who are wrestling with this. And I'll say I'm happy to do a, a conversation on this in the same way Steve talked about the five categories. I have a lecture and you'll, you can find it online. It's really easy to find online. And what I'll do is I'll simply present the different views and then let them have a discussion. And when I do this, I'll say, we're doing it on a Friday night. I don't want it announced in the bulletin. I want this to be very quiet, and I want it only so we encourage the young people. And many of these young people in college and career settings, you know, they're just aching for someone to say, it's okay, evolution's true, and this doesn't have to undermine your faith. Now, one of the techniques I do when I do this lecture, and we did it last night here, is I have people, you know, answer what their views are. And what is really haunting is when it comes to these young people, the number of young earth creationists is always under 10%. The number of evolutionary creationists or theistic evolutionists is always over 75%. And when we did the, the survey last night, no surprises here at Wycliffe, over 90% of these people that came to the lecture last night have no trouble with evolution. So the pastoral side is very, very important. And you know, being a male, it's taken me a little while to understand this. I don't have to win every debate. You know, get over the lust of trying to win a debate, and it is a lust. I'll admit I had that for the longest time till finally I realized you're, you're here to build people up, not tear them down. 
And being an ex-college hockey player, sometimes you got to take some hits for the team. And sometimes it'll include some good slashes and butt ends, and you have to do this for the sake of the kingdom. And, and so uh, the pastoral component, I mean, I love the academic side, but if you want to know what gets me up in the morning, it's to encourage young people and to say to them, you do not have to lose your faith on this. And at the same time, for the searchers who come into my class, that 40% of non-Christians, to say, you know something? There is a pretty rational side to Christianity. It's just not all this airy-fairy stuff. We, God has commanded us, Jesus commanded us to love God with our minds, and I think that's part of what's, what doing good academics is. It does glorify God. And, uh, you know, it's, it's back to the kids. It's back to the 40% of their non-Christians. It's just amazing that they come into the class, and then I, read, I always read their stuff. I don't hand it to a TA. And it's just amazing to see the development going on and the searching going on. And I have the privilege to sort of say, well, you can have a look at Jesus. This is, uh, he's, he's someone to really consider seriously. Well, I think we're going to open uh, up for some Q&A, and we have okay. some time to do that. Um, after the Q&A, feel free to stick around. Dennis is staying in the building, so he'll, he'll stay late. But uh, yep. we want to take a little bit of time for those who may have a question. And feel free, like, if you really think that Dennis is off base, you can, you can, he hasn't heard, he, he's heard it before, so he's ready for your question, um, and I, so. I actually get it in stereo, from the fundamentalist Christians to the fundamentalist atheists, so you get it both ways. So my, my background is, uh, I did my undergrad in, in theology and my master's in philosophy, and I'm, okay. I'm kind of, I'm with you about 75% of the way, I would okay. consider myself a uh, progressive creationist. Okay, great. So, so I agree with you hermeneutically about the Old Testament. You know, okay. I'm there with like John Walton, John Collins. Yeah, good friends of mine, absolutely. Awesome. And they're yeah. doing wonderful work. Um, let, me, let me praise John Walton in particular. Mm -hmm. He has given permission to evangelicals to read the ancient Near Eastern literature and they can see the parallels in scripture, things like the, the ancient science or the ancient cosmology. So John has been wonderful, and he's a dear friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. I think they have great perspectives in the Old Testament. Uh, and then philosophically, I think the Christian is, can be open to either, you know, uh, God coming down and doing miracles or God somehow, you know, setting, rolling the dice at the beginning and setting things out perfectly. Yep. So I'm, I'm all for that. But scientifically, I'm still not there yet with believing in evolution. Fair enough. Um, I, I spent nine days at the Discovery Institute in Seattle, yep. Washington, which is probably like the foremost think tank, I would say, in, in the um, intelligent design movement with, you know, Stephen Myers, uh, Michael Behe and all that. Yep, friends of mine. How, do you find any of their arguments, like such as like Steve Myers' signature in the cell, or Doug Axe's work on the impossibility to get even one, you know, useful foldable protein in the, in the history of, of the universe, or uh, Michael Behe's work on like genetic entropy that it's easier to break genes and lose information to gain survival uh, advantage, uh, that kind of work, or or Michael Behe's work or idea on irreducible complexity, the Cambrian explosion. Do you find any of those arguments? Uh, interesting or challenging. I'm just interested to hear your view on those. Sure. I mean, these are all friends of mine, and you might be interested. As I'm phasing out of my anti-evolutionism, I met all these guys in Cambridge at the C.S. Lewis Summer Institute in, 
in uh, 94. So I know who these guys are, and in fact, I was loosely associated with them because I, I was there as an anti-evolutionist. Um, the one thing about, um, let's talk about the intelligent design movement. Uh, it's unfortunate that they're using the term intelligent design because the traditional understanding of intelligent design is the following. It's the belief that beauty, complexity, and functionality point to some sort of designer. And that is the, the traditional understanding of design. Now, what they've done with this term, and you're right, you, you identified yourself as a progressive creationist, and that is what the ID movement is. It's a form of progressive creation. So they accept the Earth being very, the universe being very old, so cosmology and geology they're completely comfortable with. But they're having these events, these divine events in which God adds information or moves around genes and stuff like that. And there's a technical term for that in the literature. It's called the God of the gaps. Now, philosophically, I'm not opposed to the God of the gaps. God could go and create over time, come out of heaven, create something, go back. And, and that's how you get this idea of progressive creation but we have a historical record on the God of the gaps that every time, and it's, it's a religious person, proposes a gap in nature requiring an intervention from God, it's turned out to be a gap in their knowledge. Here's your classic one, retrograde planetary motion, where take, for example, Mars. All the planets make these little loops back and forth. And back in the 15th century, someone like Martin Luther would say, this is too much of a movement for angels to do. Some people thought it was angels, but God had to do it. Now, here was the problem with Martin Luther in the 16th century. He was a geocentrist. And the moment we became the third rock from the sun, we realized this retrograde planetary motion was due to the phenomena on Earth. Uh, another example of a god of the gaps, in Europe when geology was just starting to emerge, there was these massive U-shaped valleys in the Alps but the tiny, tiny little rivers. And they thought, no, there's no way you could get these U-shaped by, done by uh, little rivers. So, of course, we've got, within our Christian tradition, the flood, and so they were explaining this through floods. And it was only when we started thinking these were glaciers and due to glacial action that it was a gap in their knowledge, not a gap in, uh, in the world where God had to intervene. All right, now let's move ahead to Mike Behe, good friend of mine. The um, thing I'll say about Mike, we disagree, we've debated, but this man is an absolute gem. I, I love Mike. We'll go have a debate, and then we'll go have dinner, and we won't even talk about the debate. Just find out where we're going in terms of our faith. Uh, his famous book, 1996, uh, Darwin's Black Box. And the thing about Darwin's Black Box, of course, this all got incorporated by the ID movement. They don't read the first five pages of the book where Michael says he's a complete evolutionist except for the first cell. Now, here's where the state of science is today. Do we know how inert molecules turned into self-replicating molecules, self-assembled into cells? The answer is we have. We've got a lot of theories, but no one, no one really knows. And so here's the question. Is this a place where there's an intervention, where God intervened? And philosophically, I'm not opposed by that. Remember, I'm a Pentecostal, so I have no trouble with signs and wonders. It's just that there's a track record historically. And who are the individuals really promoting this? It's evangelicals like Steve Meyer, Bill Dembski, Paul Nelson, and folks like that. Now, these guys came out of the closet in 2017. 
For years and years, and you hear the term, we're holding the intelligent design theory and we're saying this is only a scientific theory. I mean, I knew otherwise, I know them personally. They, were, they are concordists, so they're using their Bible to go ahead and talk about divine action. Now, in 2017, out came the 1,000-page book. Yeah, they did a good job. They tried trashing me, Francis Collins, and everyone else. But what is absolutely stunning about the book, and by the way, I've written a 20-page review of it. Of the 1,000 pages, 250 pages are about biblical interpretation and how you go to biblical interpretation to go and get scientific ideas. So, for example, in Genesis 1, it makes reference to God created different living organisms according to their kinds. Stephen Meyer point-blankly says, this is a scientific idea. There's no way that living organisms are connected. And for these events to be created according to their kinds, you need those divine events. Now, do you remember that term I talked about called concordism? They are concordists, and they're not fully aware of it. That's because many evangelicals are concordists and not aware of it. And again, it's not irrational. It's a, a reasonable assumption. But I'll come back to what is the biblical text actually saying? It is an ancient cosmology. It is not revealing scientific facts ahead of the time. So here's the bottom line. I love these guys. They're friends. We disagree. Um, we can agree that the Earth's very old, except Big Bang cosmology. Um, but my, my break with them, and if you look at who these guys are, I want to know who the Old Testament scholar is on their, in their group, and I have not identified one. And I'm coming back to my friend Glenn Taylor here, the Old Testament scholar, commiserating, saying, we're the Old Testament scholars helping in this discussion. So if you don't have an Old Testament scholar understanding you know, what's going on in the text, don't be surprised you're going to have a concordist hermeneutic. So my, the book, or the book, the paper I wrote, it was an essay review. It was simply this, intelligent design theory, the god of the gaps, god intervening along the way, rooted in concordism, rooted in the notion that there's scientific ideas that come out of the scriptures. And I guess one of the philosophical things, as you say, like, I'm open to the god of the gaps of god intervening. The flip of that is... Are you open to God creating through an evolutionary pro process? Is God omnipotent? And if he chose to do so, could he have done that? And that's a good point. And the pushback I get from the ID guys, they won't even consider going there. And remember, I'm a friend. I've been around with these guys ever since 94, and uh, that's, that's just not a consideration. And that is the depths of concordism. That is the depths of the hermeneutical agenda. And again, remember, it is quite reasonable. God created the world. I believe that. God inspired the scripture. I believe that. To suggest there's some sort of accord between the two of them is not irrational. But here's the but. And here's my appeal to my Old Testament colleagues. What are the Old Testament guys saying on this? And You won't find many Old Testament guys going in that direction to say this category of creation according to their kinds this is, this is evidence that God intervenes to create these different types of creatures and that there is no evolutionary connection between them. Just, uh, I just wanted to bring up that sort of, I guess where I find, uh, I find it difficult to reconcile evolution in my faith is, is sort of like the idea of a soul, right? Yep. And that, um, you know, like there must be some sort of gradual transition between like a pre-human and a human and then, like, at what point does the soul come into that, you know? That, that's a great question. Um, 
I'm going to bring you back to the womb. Okay. When did you get ensouled? I have no idea. Good. <laughs> Look, <laughs> you, this isn't a plant, by the way, but that is the answer. And his eyebrows went to the top of his hairline. <laughs> we have a category in theology called mystery. And I don't take out the M card every time in a tight corner. But there are certain things we can't really wrap our heads around. For example, the incarnation, fully God and fully man. Think hard about that, and your brain should melt down a bit. <laughs> the Trinity, you know, three persons in one. Think hard about that, your head should melt on it. I think there are some areas that are mysterious. So in the same way, I will argue, the ensoulment of an individual like you or I along our developmental process, and I really think you said the perfect answer. Who knows? I'm going to give you a, a simple cladogram that when it comes to humans, around six million years ago, they were called what are called commonly uh, common ancestor, the last common ancestor between us and chimps. So chimps go down this line, and we go down this line. Around two, and, and by the way, when it comes to the fossil record, this line going from the last common ancestor to humans, there are over 6,000 fossils. I mean, it's a very well-attested fossil record. Around 200,000 years ago, we have what are called modern, anatomically modern humans, where if we would cut their hair and put them in modern clothes, we could sit them right down and no one would notice anything about them. But if you watch them, they don't behave like us. They're behaving extremely simply. Then around 50K, and some people call this the neurological Big Bang, other people call it the cultural revolution, something really dramatic happens and it happens fairly quickly. And we have what are called behaviorally modern humans, and they start behaving like us, doing things. And the one that always catches me is they're burying their dead with stuff. The moment you start burying your dead with stuff, what are you thinking? You're thinking of an afterlife. So they're thinking religiously. So I would suggest when it comes to the manifestation of the image of God, and I'm going to use your answer, is mysteriously manifested, but it's in the region of the 50,000-year period where, you know, art starts emerging, complex tools starts emerging. And I think that's where the image of God is manifested. I think that's where moral culpability is starting to emerge and having a sense of right or wrong where we become responsible and culpable. So the whole idea of, you know, and it's the cardinal to are, are we sinners? Theology would say yes, absolutely. Are creating the image of God? Yes. I'd say that happens around 50K, and it happens within a population as opposed to just two individuals. Because if there's one thing that's so great about the genetic uh, revolution, we now know that you cannot bottleneck uh, humanity down to just two individuals. Um, it's, it's a population, and genetics is that's population genetics. So that can all be co-opted. Uh, and, and I'll make another addition. So when it comes to the Word of God, what am I doing? I am extracting those, and watch the word I'm going to use as an evangel. I'll call them inerrant, inerrant spiritual truths. Like we bear the image of God, we're morally culpable, and we're sinners. So we have this theological truth, and in the same way the Word of God placed this on an ancient science, we can go ahead and extract these teeth. Uh, these teeth. Oh boy, I'm thinking dentistry, aren't I? <laughs> Extract teeth. That was how many times have I said that in my lifetime? We can extract. How about if we can pull away these wonderful spiritual truths? And by the way, you don't need a PhD in theology to figure them out. Everyone can identify them, and then lay, overlay them on a different vessel, 
a modern evolutionary vessel to say, yeah, we're creating the image of God, but the Lord used an evolutionary process to do it. One thing, a common argument made against evolution, and I'm undecided, so I'm a theology guy, not a science guy, so, um, but the common I've heard is that for there to be evolution, you have to have de death oh. before the fall. Now, how do you reconcile that? Uh, that good ball seems to that 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 seems thin. And so how do you reconcile that with an let me congratulate you. That is the toughest question of all, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, how you can reconcile death, you know, especially yeah. oh, in how oh. Paul writes it, oh. that death came through sin. Uh, obviously, in your view, there's death before culpability. There's there, well, Exactly. So let's take a look at the fossil record. Where did humans show up? Right at the very, very top. We've got hundreds and millions of years of death, no ands, ifs, or buts. It's coming back to the Word of God. Is the Word of God very clear that humans descend from two individuals? Absolutely. Um, does death come after Adam and Eve are created? Absolutely. But here's, and this will not be a satisfying answer, but I'm just going to try to make that first step. If I'm correct, in the same way many Old Testament scholars will suggest that there's an ancient understanding of origins in the Bible. For example, an ancient understanding of the origin of life. And it's just not the scripture. You can see this in all the ancient, most of the ancient Near Eastern accounts where everything gets created quickly and fully developed and complete. I mean, that's what you definitely see in Genesis 1. And the technical term for this is de novo creation. It's creation that is brand new and it's quick and complete. Uh, obviously, this would not align with an evolutionary model, but my move is to say the Holy Spirit came down to the level of these ancient people and used their ancient understanding of the origin of life. So does that kind of make sense to you? Okay. If the Bible has an ancient understanding of the origin of life, I think it's only consistent that the Bible would have an ancient understanding of the origin of death. Got it? Does that make sense? And so in the same way, I will not go to the scriptures to find out how humans came about, because the one thing, and I just finished mentioning, you cannot bottleneck humanity just two people. The genetics just won't allow it. And I will not go to the scriptures to find out how death came about. But what I will do go to the scriptures is they use an ancient understanding of death, but it's being used to get across the message we all need to hear. You don't listen to God. You sin, and God will judge you. And, you know, as a, theolog as a theologian guy, you realize that's probably one of the greatest truths we could ever imagine. Um, another way of looking at this is, look, at God can do anything he wants, and we could do a, a God of the gaps. He could go that route. 
the Holy Spirit could have put an ancient Hebrew person 3,500 years ago in a, in a trance and scribbled out, I created through Big Bang cosmology and evolutionary biology. Could have done that. Would anyone have understood? God is gracious. And I think this is part of everyone's Christian experience. Doesn't God meet us at the place we're actually at to communicate to us? So when the Holy Spirit started inspiring these ancient Hebrews, he came down to their level. And it wasn't, and he, he used their ancient understanding of origins, which is de novo creation, creation that's quick and complete. And used that as a vessel to get across. And these were really radical ideas that the world is a creation, there's only one God. And when it comes to Genesis 1, when it comes to the creation of sun, moon, and stars, you know, our problem is sun, moon, and stars are inert bodies, heavenly bodies. But those were gods in the ancient world. So what is the writer of Genesis 1 doing? This is, this is polemical. It's saying these, these are not gods. These are very good creations. So it's a... It's, it's a the, 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 the trick, and I was like pointing out, think about the water bottle. You need a vessel to, to deliver the water. And if we're going to push the metaphor a little further, think of John 4, the woman at the well and the living waters. So what I'm seeing in the scripture is the Holy Spirit is using this ancient vessel that everyone would have understood, their science of the day, but brought this radical message that there is only one God, he's a holy God, and you, and here's something really radical, and this is why you read the ancient Near Eastern literature, humans were slaves and with the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. And what, what does this God do? He calls you created in the image of God and everyone's in the image of God. And another thing about this language of the image of God, it's out there in the ancient Near East. It's given to kings. So what this term is being done, and again, I'll say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's a radical message that we are going to be the kings and queens of this universe. Amen. Dennis, thank you for coming. Uh, yeah, I love and, being here. Uh, for the talk, it's great to meet you and uh, hear you speak. I want to kind of follow up on that question uh, because I actually read uh, your article in Biologos uh, regarding uh, sort of the creation account in Genesis and stuff. Yep. Um, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're, uh, uh, to get the, um, to, to, to allow uh, scriptures and the kind of scientific understanding of uh, the universe to come together, you're trying to abstract the central message of the scripture away from maybe ancient Bronze Age understanding of, yep. of uh, the That's world, well said. The way, right? Yeah. Um, um, and uh, what um, kind of struck me is, um, nevertheless, the richness of that Bronze Age language, where the God uses the firmament to divide the waters below and waters above, or uh, the image of the God as a potter, uh, informing matter, and 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 so on, when it comes to creation of um, creatures. Um, and I wonder, um, it, it's such a rich semantic um, uh, uh, yes. ground, field, of, uh, this language uh, sort of opens it up. Surely it's not meaningless to, to the 21st century mind, right? That, that ancient cosmology, that ancient, call it which you will, phenomenology perhaps. Um, 
can we? I understand that you, you're sort of writing to a m more conservative, perhaps evangelical reading yep. of the Bible. Um, but would, would that message of this richer interpretation of the Bible be, you think, meaningful to our modern minds and especially to perhaps conservative readers of the Bible who want to be literal about the word? Uh, very open question, please. Yeah. Please um, on it. Let, let me make something very clear. I'm not suggesting we should change the scripture at all whatsoever. Um, there's an aspect to, let's talk about Genesis 2 and 3, the garden account. I think that's a, now I'm going to use a word that some people might get troubled with. I think it's a magnificent story. It's parable-like, if you wish. And one of my sub-arguments will be immediately who one-third of his teaching were parables. You know, Jesus Christ, right? Um, and so when I look at the the account of the Garden of Eden, um, there are some signposts that sort of jump out at me. For example, there are two mystical trees. One imparts eternal life, the other one knowledge of good and evil. There is a fast-talking snake. Now, for you guys in literature, I mean, you know where I'm going with this. There are cherubim, and of course we think of cherubim as chubby little angels. No, they're composite creatures just like the Sphinx. And the garden is guarded by a sword that's spinning and flaming. When you start, and, and, and by the way, when it comes to the man and the woman, the man is Adam, and he's made of Adama. It's a play on words. It's coming across as archetypal. So when I look at this text, there's no doubt about it. For me, it's Holy Spirit-inspired. And it's a magnificent story to get across spiritual truths. And that's what parables do incredibly well. So when I look at this passage, I mean, what really hits me, which is so spectacular, is after they bite into the fruit, the Lord goes up to the woman. And do you remember what the woman says? I'm going to point at the snake. The snake made me do it. Can you feel the blame game coming on? And then what's even better with Adam, when the Lord God goes up to Adam, and you know, what's up? He blames the woman, and he says, it's the woman that you put here with me. You're not only blaming the woman, you're blaming God for putting the woman there. And so when I look at this, I, I just think it's the most, one of the most marvelous passages in Scripture to say, can't you see yourself, Dennis? Can't you see yourself as Adam and Eve? Can you not see Adam and Eve as archetypal of who we are? We're sinners, but we're not only sinners, we try to rationalize our sin, and we try to rationalize our sin in front of God. It doesn't get better than that in Scripture as far as I'm concerned. But with that being said, I don't think for a second any of those things happened because there's markers in the text saying to me, this looks like it's parable-like. This is allegorical-like. And let me say something that many of you Christians have probably never heard before. You know, think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a wonderful parable. Think of its impact on Western culture. There's legal, there's laws that have been built on it. But watch what I'm about to say. There never was a Good Samaritan. There never was a guy who got beaten up and a Levite and a priest walked by. There never was a Good Samaritan came and bandaged him up and put him in an inn. Why? It's a story. 
My Lord and Savior uses stories to communicate amazing truths. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is your classic example of how unbelievably important truths, in this case, be merciful. In this case, who's my neighbor? And of course, Jesus being a little edgy by putting a Samaritan in there that would have irritated all the Jews, made the Jews look bad, the Levite and the priest. And, the priest. and it's a wonderful part of the Word of God to reveal spiritual truth. And so I, I look at the parables of Jesus, and again, third of Jesus' teaching in parables, and then I come back to Genesis, and I, I see that. Now, with all that being said, this is part of my education. Remember who I am. And I should have added, this university is a pretty special place for me. Because in 1983, I was in first year medical school. And I walked out of medical school after three days to pursue this, this theology uh, thing. And the reason, in my justification, I thought, look, you can find all sorts of people, really bright people, going into medicine. They're tripping over themselves to get into medicine. But where are the bright guys going out to defend creation science and young earth creation? I mean, that was my justification back there. But what was the Lord doing? That was the only understanding of creation I had. He came down to my level. And he says, I, you know, you're going to become a creation scientist. But he accommodated to me as he accommodates within the text. And then I went to Regent College, and it's all that literalism. And, of course, what I've just given you an argument that these early chapters like Genesis, that's the garden account, is a, a magnificent parable-like thing. The only way I got there is thanks to all these people in the Old Testament and thanks to all these people in the humanities to give Dennis an education in literature, which Dennis sadly needed. And I think that's, that's part of the solution to that. Now, with that being said, it's an issue of pastoral and pedagogical responsibility. You guys are a pretty high-end crowd. I would not say many of the things I said today in, say, a general church uh, population, because we've got to be... This can be stumbling blocks for people, and I don't want to do that. And I'll also add a little piece of the puzzle. I have a wonderful mother who prayed me into the kingdom. Um, she is a young earth creationist. Uh, she's troubled with the stuff I believe, but at the same time, I had to tell her because I was becoming a public person. Um, and I can live with that. And um, again, it's just um, we've, we've got to build up not tear down.